Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who really loved to read the Job Wanted ad from SparkY Youth Lab today. Uh, SparkY is looking for an education director, um, and it's looking for a leader of educators, a friend of teachers and administrators, maintainer of balance, spreader of love, asker and answer of questions, holder of the peace, the vision, and the grounded plan coach, facilitator, and challenger for excellence in program delivery. So if you want to find out more about the SparkY education director job, um, you can go to sparkY.org, SparkLab. Um, but I just, um, you know, we're taping the show on uh, Thursday, May 28th, and I just love that phrase, the maintainer of balance, spreader of love, asker and answerer of questions, holder of peace and the vision and the grounded plan. And so if um, if you need to check out some positive virtual events, um, there was a fantastic one last week called One Earth Live. It was music and speakers and yoga. Um, there's also presencing uni- uh, organizations doing Gaia presentation, a lot of wonderful free um tools out there to kind of find that uh, that maintain to, to maintain our balance and and to find our own um, love and uh, find our own peace our inner peace um, on today's show on today's food freedom radio we're going to be talking about this week's three to two decision in the city of falcon heights to ban gardening in the front yard <laughs> um yakashe um way um as a city council member and he'll be joining us later in the show but first we're going to be talking with author craig b upright and we're discussing his new book um grocery activism the radical history of food cooperatives in minnesota um he will have a virtual event um uh, with the um, east side freedom library on thursday june 4th so welcome to food freedom radio craig Thank you very much for having me, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about your background. I am a sociologist. I currently teach at Winona State University in their Department of Sociology. Um, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and my my first job, uh, my first real job, was at a dishwasher in a restaurant. And I continued working in restaurants throughout college, and then after I graduated with a degree in mathematics and English literature um, wasn't wasn't quite as marketable as perhaps it could have been, but I wasn't really thinking along those terms. Uh, later, I opened up a small coffee shop uh, called Motor Oil Industrial Coffees on St. Paul's Selby Avenue, and uh, eventually I discovered sociology and and wanted to study the sociology of food and, and restaurants. Hmm. So, uh, through my involvement with um, some of the, the fine dining restaurants in Minneapolis, uh, such as the, the Lauren Cafe and the New French Cafe, uh, working with um, my chef, uh, Lenny Russo, we were particularly interested in trying to source the local and organic foods uh, whenever we could. Uh, I became his requisitions manager and and I discovered that it's very difficult to get both local and organic at the same time. So, so that, that started me thinking about the different choices that we make in terms of our individual consumption patterns, uh, what, what, is, what matters to us, and how food really does uh, embody the values that many of us hold dear. Yeah, so your book is on the the history of cooperatives. Now let's let's go maybe start at the founding of the state of Minnesota. Um, economic 
cooperative behavior actually has a very deep root. So you want to talk a little bit about Minnesota's history in terms of cooperative? Well, sure. Um, cooperatives have been part of the entire nation uh, since its founding. Um, um, Benjamin Franklin was a proponent of cooperatives. And it was in the 19th century that the cooperative form uh, became a, a little bit more uh, routinized, standardized, institutionalized, and perhaps is the best word. Um, we often look to the Rochdale Pioneers, uh, a group of weavers in England, as one of the first modern or contemporary uh, cooperatives. Uh, but Minnesota was uh, host to, to many uh, cooperative organizations from its founding. Um, Minnesota is one of the first states that actually codified what a cooperative would, would mean in a business or regulatory sense in 1870. Hmm. It was one of the first states that actually talked about co-ops and what its obligations and responsibilities and, and rights would be. So co-ops have been part of Minnesota's uh, social, economic, and especially agricultural fabric from the the mid to, to late 19th century, and, and that continues to today. Great. And uh, uh, cooperative economics is deeply rooted also in African-American culture. Um, author Jessica Gordon Namhar in her book, um, Collective Courage, she documents that. So in the Twin Cities in the 1940s, uh, there was this wave of cooperative grocery stores, and five were, prom- prom- uh, were mainly um, African-American. Um, so this use, so the purpose behind the cooperation, uh, what is the purpose behind these cooperatives? Um. Early on, when I was researching cooperatives, I ran across a couple of theorists that talked about why you would actually need to have a cooperative within a capitalist economy. And and two lessons that that I took away from uh, some of the theoretical research about cooperatives. Cooperatives generally exist for one of two reasons. Uh, when, When the capitalist market is not able to serve some need of the community, uh, that would be number one. And number two is when the the, the capitalist um, companies do not serve a need particularly well. So cooperatives generally form when when there's some sort of market failure taking place. Um, cooperatives can be found in all sorts of industrial sectors, uh, but they often work best when they are at the community level uh, serving people who want to get goods or services, uh, oftentimes provided with a certain set of values or ideals, and and you can keep those profits uh, within the community to help sustain them. So you know, what is a cooperative? What do we mean when we use that word? Or what do you? What does it mean? A cooperative is an economic form of organization uh, in which members control what is taking place. Uh, There is a principle of one member, one vote, um, so that you you try to make it difficult for any one individual or even a small group of individuals to be able to take over the cooperative and and decide what direction it wants to take. Cooperatives uh, are rooted in principles of participatory democracy. So whether they are worker cooperatives or consumer cooperatives, um, the goal is to to provide these goods and services to the individuals who need them 
without trying to extract as much profit as possible. Co-ops are not nonprofit organizations, but you might want to think of them as no-profit organizations. And some of those early uh, Minnesota statutes were, were specifying that any profit that is generated from the revenue uh, should be returned to its members. And, you know, with us facing so much disruption at this moment, um, a deep look at what is the economy for? What's the purpose of life? Um, uh, the way our economy is structured right now requires 1.75 planets. There's huge inequities. Um, the animals, there's so many issues with our economics that are not fitting of our humanity. And so cooperatives offer a different roadmap. Would you agree with that? Uh, I do agree with that. Um, when you take a look at the economy, it's, it's kind of taking, it's similar to taking a look at why does government exist. Uh, does government exist in order to uh, protect the people, um, especially from capitalist organizations uh, that seek to exploit them? Or does it seek to preserve the ability of those organizations to get as much profit as possible? And so you can look at the economy in the same way. Why do businesses exist? Um, obviously, you know, for-profit uh, proprietor uh, organizations they want to make a profit. Um, that's understandable. Um, but I think that we as a society recognize that uh, that businesses and governments exist in order to help people lead more satisfying lives. And is it part of um, the, the idea of, uh, of an ownership, um, even if it's cooperative, even if I own it with, if, if, if I own it with my, my buddies, if I, if, but it's the idea of not being peons to a, to a larger system, but to, um, to own the means of production? Um, it is owning the means of production, and it's also owning um, the policies that are going to be adopted uh, by a particular organization. Uh, again, we go back to the, the concept of participatory democracy. Uh, what if in every store that you went into, you actually had a say in what the store hours are going to be and what the store uh, was going to be offering for sale, uh, how it was going to be uh, paying its workers, you know, what sort of benefits it would be uh, supplying. Um, that, that is the model of the cooperative, is that those who want to have a stake in this, um, it's not just a financial stake, but it's a personal ideological stake. We, we want to have some control in how this particular business is going to be operating within our community. And uh, you're going to be uh, discussing your new book, Grocery Activism, The Radical History of Food Cooperatism in Minnesota, at 7 o'clock on Thursday, June 4th, at the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, and people can get more details. Um, where can people find out more information about that? Uh, the simplest website to remember is groceryactivism.com. Uh, there's also information at the Eastside Freedom Library's website. Uh, this will be uh, b broadcast on Facebook and YouTube. Great. And there will be we're, a Q Q and A. We're going to we're going to take a break. Room. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the history. What happened in the '70s? Welcome back to uh, Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nurse the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, 
And uh, joining us by phone is um, author Craig B. Upright, um, and he's talking about his new book, Grocery Activism, The Radical History of Food Cooperatives in Minnesota. So um, let's get to the 1970s. That's the focus of your book. What happened in the 70s? In the 1970s, you had um, a group of countercultural activists um, who had been uh, looking at mainstream structures, uh, mainstream uh, values, in society throughout the 1960s, and and they were oftentimes mistrustful uh, of some of these uh, mainstream organizations, and, and especially the government. Uh, the Vietnam War had been going on during this time, and and also uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, there had been a movement to uh, take a, a, a new look at some of the the mainstream agriculture, and and there was a lot of um, a lot more processing of foods. Uh, there is a lot of consolidation uh, within the agricultural industry. Right. So uh, many of these activists, they wanted to uh, not just protest against what they saw was wrong, but to actually create some longer-lasting institutions uh, that would go beyond them to help address some of these ills that they were uh, identifying. And they were successful. Um, it, it was intervening in capitalist market markets to promote social change. It, it was a success. Uh, it, it was a, a very interesting experiment, and the, the fact that we are talking about them now not as historical artifacts, but in, in, in light of the uh, wide-ranging population of cooperatives that existed to this day in, in Minnesota, uh, yeah, I think in many ways that we can call uh, what they set out to achieve as being a success. Still a lot of work to be done, of course, but uh, the fight continues. So um, so co-ops had a tremendous growth. They were about 20 in 1975, um, almost doubled by 1980. What what caused that growth? What was, what was behind that? Uh, there were cooperatives that were uh, sprouting up uh, across the entire United States, uh, but in Minnesota... Uh, we had more, and they tended to be uh, longer-lasting, and they tended to work with each other a little bit more than co-ops in other states. There is a, a principle among uh, contemporary cooperatives um, that's referred to as cooperation among cooperatives. And those Minnesota uh, co-ops in, in the early 70s uh, most of them were devoted to providing a different type of food product, um, not just a different type of store. Um, organic food didn't exist uh, in, in any sort of regulatory form. It, it was more of a, a cultural understanding of what organic uh, could be or should be. Uh, but it was very difficult to source those products and, and get them on the store shelves. So in, in the 1970s, um, many of these... Um, uh, early co-ops, they banded together. Uh, they created a distribution center um, known as the People's Warehouse. Um, a, a later distribution center uh, called Dance uh, was formed. Uh, but these co-ops worked with each other in order to uh, stay financially uh, independent and yet help promote each other's ideals. But there was something called the co-op wars in the 1970s. What was that about? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Cooperation among cooperatives, uh, it, it, it's a nice slogan, um, but you're dealing with real people uh, with, with real uh, agendas, 
and sometimes they don't always agree. In in the early 1970s, two camps uh, really developed around this co-op movement, and one was uh, really pushing for natural organic foods, and the other saw the co-ops as a, a challenge to the mainstream uh, capitalist uh, economic system. And for quite some time, uh, both factions were able to uh, exist, cooperate, uh, uh, further each other's goals. Um, but uh, some tensions came to the head in 1975, um, spilling over into the spring of, of 1976, um, where where the, the tension between why does the co-op exist uh, really came to the fore. Um, in, in its most simplistic uh, conception, you could say that the argument was about should we sell canned beans in our stores or should we only sell uh, bulk dried beans? That well, that is something to fight store. about. <laughs> uh, you, you take a look through the historical archives and, and people <laughs> took this uh, very seriously. You know, the, the idea of having any canned products at all in the co-ops uh, was a really big deal. And 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 then so a, a lot of political ideologies got embedded into uh, these two iconic uh, products. Um, there were tensions and and there were takeovers of uh, the people's warehouse and of individual cooperatives, um, uh, primarily in the the metro area. Now the the takeover of the people's warehouse that was actually um, tell us more about that. Uh, this is really well documented in Craig Cox's book uh, titled Storefront Revolution. Um, and, and I'm really indebted to Craig Cox for um, documenting what was taking place during this time. Um, the People's Warehouse was the primary distribution center for uh, not just the, the metro co-ops, but, but those across uh, the state. Uh, I, I do need to point out that in the early 1970s, most of the co-ops in Minnesota uh, were in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, there was also an early co-op in Winona, in, in, in St. Cloud, and in Duluth. Uh, but, but the distribution was really taking place in um, the Twin Cities. And so there was a faction uh, that referred to themselves as the co-op organization uh, that wanted to um, there, there are different accounts of this, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, some said that they wanted to quash uh, the natural organic uh, movement. Uh, others say that they simply wanted to make the co-ops more responsive to the needs of their individual communities. Uh, one member of the co-op organization said that if, if she or they had uh, their way, that the co-op would look just like a 7-Eleven, except with cheaper prices. So there was tension, and uh, eventually uh, this didn't wind up in the courts about who actually owns the People's Warehouse. And I, I think the, the bigger takeaway from the co-op wars is that people really did want to pay attention to the food that was being sold in the co-ops, and they wanted the food to be sustainable, uh, both for individual bodies but for larger agricultural communities. And... And it was really after uh, the co-op wars uh, died down that you saw a tremendous growth of co-ops, especially outside of the Twin Cities, and most of them were promoting natural organic food. 
Yeah, so tell us a, a little bit more, because I, I also remember there were a, a lot of co-ops that also um, did not make it past the 80s. I know uh, I was participating in a co-op on 22nd and Johnson. There was a small co-op there for a while. So there was some, there's a lot of struggles to, to this, this economic model is not an easy thing to create a new a way of doing food. No, it, it's really challenging. It's really challenging to run any business. Uh, and, and I know this firsthand when I was trying to uh, keep this small independent coffee shop alive. Uh, it's, it depends on daily revenues. It depends on the energy of people uh, coming to the store day after day, stocking the shelves, you know, sweeping the floors, et cetera. Uh, the lifespan for any business and uh, capitalist system is is pretty short. It, it, if any of if any business of any kind makes it past three to five years, they're doing pretty well. So the fact that uh, so many of these co-ops survived from uh, the 70s up until now is pretty remarkable. But yeah. it depends on uh, the daily infusion of energy of its members, and and especially for some of the the, the smaller co-ops that maybe only had one or two dozen active members. Um, it, it's pretty easy for that business to go by the wayside. People have their own lives. Uh, they're, they're growing up. They're getting families. And, and so you really need to create a, a good, sustainable organization that does not rely on just one or two key individuals to keep it going. So by studying the history of the co-ops, um, how, how do you see the future of the co-ops? The co-ops have changed a lot uh, since the time period that I was focusing on, the 1970s and into the 1980s. And I know that there's a lot of angst, uh, or if that's too strong of a term, uh, there's some lamenting that the co-ops of today, they don't look anything like they did in the 1970s. Uh, you were part of that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, is is that bit. how you, you would characterize well, I, I actually, I, I kind of, I missed the, I remember it, I was like 15 or um, so, but yeah, and I, I know someone else was really active in one, and I mean, it w- was very much a community, I mean, it, but but today, like, I, I am going to point out um, the structures, like at the, at Seward Co-op, they do community foods, and so that means they look at strict criterias, is it local, sustainable, cooperative, inclusive, or su- sustainable, and 42% of the food meets at least two of those quali- those two of those um, criteria. I may not consider that as articulate as I'd like, but the point being is that um, the co-ops right now are still our best bet for t- trying to create that world that we want to create. And that, that spirit um, that I think was so living in the 70s. Um, and, uh, and Absolutely. And, and most of those co-ops that formed in the 1970s, they were strictly worker cooperatives. Um, people, if they were a member, they were expected to volunteer. Um, and whether that was going to be spending time at the cash register or cutting cheese or, or sweeping out the cooler or doing the stocking, um, that's the reason that those co-ops were able to, to make it um, through the 70s, 80s, and, and into the 90s. Um, almost all of the, the co-ops across the country have abandoned that worker cooperative model. And so they're much more consumer cooperatives today. So rather than having two or three dozen members, you know, the Mississippi market, I think the last time I checked, they have 18,000. And and that's 
that's really hard to have a members-only meeting <laughs> in, in the back room anymore. So the nature of participatory democracy has changed in the co-ops, and I think that that's what a lot of people are, are missing for some of those early days. But, and, and yet, but, but there, the atmosphere, re- the atmosphere of the co-op oh, definitely still lives, and it's a very different shopping experience because of the atmosphere living in that in, in the co-ops. I think so. Um, when when the lockdown orders were first coming down in the middle of March, uh, I. I, I did uh, some of my my shopping um, because you know everything was was unknown. You know what what are the stores going to look like? And I ended up going to a Target on University Avenue, and the co-op down at the end of my block, Mississippi Market, on the same day. And the the attitudes of the workers, but also of the shoppers, was completely different in the two stores. Um, in, in the co-op. Uh, there was a sense of calm, uh, a, a sense that even in the middle of March, we're in this together, and, you know, let's not be hoarding food, but take what you need and be respectful of everyone else. Love and, that. And, that, and you know, Craig, we're going we're gonna to need to um, take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happened in the city of Falcon Heights. But I want to give a shout out again to, again to the event that you have coming up. Um, the details on that? Uh, details on next Thursday, June 4th. Uh, go to groceryactivism.com for more information, uh, hosted by the Eastside Freedom Library and the Ramsey County Historical Society. Great. Well, thank you so much, Craig B. Upright, and your new book, Grocery Activism, The Radical History of Food Cooperatives in Minnesota. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headland, and joining us now by phone is Yakase Wei. Um, he's a council member with the city of Falcon Heights. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Thank you. Uh, let's just start by telling us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Um, well, I was born in Liberia, and I moved, I immigrated to the U.S. when I was about maybe six years old. And um, I've lived in Minnesota ever since. I grew up uh, mostly in North Minneapolis, and um, at the uh, at the end of my uh, freshman year in high school, I moved uh, to St. Francis. Uh, started living with a uh, basically an adopted family um, that took care of me, that um, helped me, you know, finish high school. And I went to Hamlin University, where I graduated with my BA in political science and history double major. And I'm a current PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota studying political science. Awesome, awesome. And now um, we're taping this on Thursday. And so yesterday there was over a three-hour meeting at the city of Falcon Heights. Um, and uh, people spoke out so passionately. And I know I'm disappointed with the, um, with the vote count, um, three to two. Do, do you want to tell us about that? Um, but, but what happened? What, what's happening in Falcon Heights? This is not regarding the ban on front yard gardening. Yeah. Thank you so much for the question. So um, I think, you know, the the city received a complaint, um, you know, uh, um, from from uh, community members about a, a community member that would, you know, that had planned on establishing a, a front yard personal community garden. Um, and, and it appeared that it was also for commercial use. 
And we recently passed a native ordinance, a native landscaping ordinance. But within that native uh, landscaping ordinance, there was no language about um, front yard uh, community gardening. And so um, that was not covered. And so the practice was essentially, um, uh, at least from the city's point of view, uh, sort of outlawed um, until and required an actual ordinance to be put in place to allow for such a practice. And so um, this was brought to the city's attention, uh, the council's attention, um, in the May 6th uh, council workshop where we had a discussion about it. And during those discussions, uh, you know, it was understood that this was meant to uh, sort of prohibit a very specific type of gardening, which is, uh, as I described, a commercialized, personal um, community garden use until um, standards were put in place for setback, for, you know, um, you know, a number of different things. Um, and so that was that. And a couple weeks ago, I can't recall the actual date, but a couple weeks ago, we had our um, council meeting to, to actually vote on, on the ordinance. And we, we uh, uh, I believe it was actually May 13th. We voted on the ordinance, and but the issue, um, as I see it, is that the nuances that we discussed in um, the workshop were not necessarily reflected in what was the, what was ultimately written, and um, so rather than putting uh, a moratorium on um, front lawn gardening for commercial purposes, personal um, front lawn gardening for commercial purposes. The the ban as or the ordinance as written ended up putting a ban on gardening generally, um, and so obviously uh, many people in the community were upset about that. Um, and so uh, last night the the vote or or the, the council meeting really centered around you know rescinding that ordinance to. Um, either you know produce a a, a, a new and, and reformed ordinance that you know uh, did a better job specifying what the council intended to do, um, or you know just uh, put a hold a, a hold on the entire process until further research was developed. But unfortunately, uh, the council voted to keep the the uh, the ordinance as written with the current language. Um, as is, and so yeah. I mean, it's it it it. it, it, I'm gonna I'm gonna have Pat play some of the clips from the public testimony yesterday, so people can get a feel of what people said. I mean, banning front yard gardens in this time of COVID really um, is hard. It's 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 difficult to swallow how a city would do that. Why they live here? They live here because it's a community, because it's a people, because it's about all of us together. Not because they did something wrong, not because he broke the law, but because he wanted to create a place and a garden. A garden. We are arguing about a garden. Mark, I noticed you haven't walked the dog lately because if you would have come by my house, you would have gotten an earful from me and my neighbors. There are at least four people on our block who have front yard gardens that include vegetables. And all of them are white. Nobody on our block got a letter about gardens being banned this year or gardens being grandfathered or everything being fine, but you targeted the guy who was Asian. How can that happen? How is that going on? You never reached out to us. You never asked us. 
Supposedly you drove around. I went back and read the meeting minutes. Supposedly you drove around and looked at gardens. Did you talk to anybody? Did you ask anybody? So, um, uh, yeah, I could say, how, how do you respond to that, to all that passion that was spoken yesterday? Well, I can certainly uh, understand where the passion is coming from. I mean, gardening is, you know, a very sort of fundamental uh, part of a homeowner's rights. Yeah, I know. And there was one, one speaker said, you know, he has started, the question is, what is a vegetable? Because he said the only right. produce, the only plants that are not allowed in our front yards are ones that we can eat. Right, right. And, you know, especially in this time of, you know, the COVID crisis, obviously, this is, uh, so the, the, I'm, I'm, I totally agree with, with the, the speaker you just played, you know, everything that she said. Um, these are some of the points that, that uh, resonated with me, that made me sort of uh, feel the need to really argue as passionately as I argued for rescinding the ordinance as well. Um, but, you know, uh, the council's decision, it, it, it is what it is. and It is what know, it I, is, and we also want to have a respectful community. And so, I mean, I also, I also totally agree with that. And I actually liked listening to the city council meeting. There was a lot of respect for each other, even though we can strongly disagree, um, mm-hmm. you know, how we find that. And so we're going to take a break, and we are come back. We're going to talk more about the decision of City of Falcon Heights to temporarily ban uh, front yard gardens. So, Pat, can we play that second clip? Then we'll start this segment with the second clip. How does that sound? That sounds good. So you want, Great. yeah. So you want the the last segment open with the with the clip? Well, no, I will. I okay. will. Um, you know what? Yeah, no, that actually. Let's do it that way. That that makes sense. Let's do it that way. Okay. I'd like you to rescind the order because I would like to see all Falcon Heights residents be able to grow really much needed food sources right now. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nurse the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headland, and we're talking about the decision of the city of Falcon Heights this year, uh, this week, uh, to uh, keep a ban on front yard gardens um, by three to two. Joining us is uh, council member uh, Yakashe Wei. Um, you actually wanted to support front yard gardens. Um, so how do you... Um, what do we make of this moment? Well, I think um, I think this is a very important moment in our uh, community's uh, history, um, and I think we, we we really had an opportunity to correct a wrong. But um, we, for for whatsoever reason, didn't seize the opportunity. The, the opportunity we didn't seize that moment, um, but. Um, you know, I guess the silver lining here is that, you know, we saw democracy exercise last night and we saw, you know, community members really speaking out passionately for for their right to grow vegetables. And um, the other silver lining for me is that this is uh, an, uh, uh, an interim ordinance. And so um, it's, it, it won't be on the books for more than a year. And I I certainly am going to be pushing the council and the city staff to move the process forward as as quickly as possible and to, you know, um, establish a set of rules and guidelines 
that will really address the issue at its core um, and, you know, present a resolution that will be agreeable to most, if not all sides. So it's certainly not the end of the of the issue, but, you know, um, I, I certainly do think that um, we didn't necessarily make the right decision, but, you know, the, the council's decision is what it is, and it is a democracy, and we will all respect it, and, um, and hopefully we can find a long-term solution um, pretty soon. Yeah. So, what were some of the neighbors who were concerned about a, um, a concerned about vegetables in the front yard? What, what were their concerns? Well, I don't think their concerns were so much about having vegetables in the in the front yards. I think um, everyone that spoke supported um, vegetables in the front yard. But the issue is that there 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 currently is no standards established in in terms of you know the size that the garden can be. In terms of because we're talking, we're talking potentially about uh, a personalized community garden, which of course is different from a, a, a broad community garden, which generally is much bigger and it's uh, it is located in, in in an area that you know is not uh, sort of prone to a lot of traffic and things of that nature. And so community members were concerned about you know having uh, people that don't necessarily have the vested interest of the community, you know, coming in and out of their, their neighborhood. Um, people were concerned about safety. Uh, people were concerned about noise and traffic and um, liability. Um, people were concerned about the, the size and the types of plants. You know, they just didn't feel that there was enough discussion um, and, and research about it for, um, for the practice to sort of continue. And so um, they, they supported a moratorium for um, for the pra- for for the research to be done, so that all of these things can be discussed and, and answered, so that a, a more permanent uh, solution can be can be found. Right, because I mean the the image the what Quinton want to do with this land is grow vegetables and say anyone who's hungry come here eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think I think this is where sort of the the miscommunication occurred. Um, I think from all sides really. You know, um, because I think the, the, the city was going off of um, what we had seen um, on social media, um, you know, uh, Mr. Wynn um, eliciting, uh, you know, uh, financial support and, and things of that nature uh, and sort of almost framing the, the garden as a commercial enterprise which um, would, would be prohibited under the, the current statutes, um, current ordinances uh, of the city. And so, you know, the city was not, at least how I interpret it, is it was not necessarily intending to, to stop gardening in general, but to really uh, give time for necessary research to be able to establish a, a set of guidelines that would allow the city to meet you know, all of the, the community's concerns, both those who are in support of, of the ordinance and those who are opposed to the ordinance, to kind of find a, a, a center ground that would be agreeable to most sides. Well, you're, studying, you're, getting a, you're working on a Ph.D. in political science, and this is such a crazy, difficult time. Um, and I know mm-hmm. you commented, too, on the city council. So... How do we find the, the the deep roots in our community to create a, a more loving community for all? 
Well, I think the, the, the fundamental issue that I'm seeing in society right now is that we tend to, uh, we, we tend to forget that what, what it is, in my opinion, is that we tend to only see um, our immediate family or our immediate friends and, and group of associates as, as family. You know, um, and I think we need to sort of expand our understanding of, of family and, and to really consider each member of our community um, a, a member of our extended family. And with that, I think we will remember the, human, uh, the, the, the humanity in each person and that it will allow us to be more thoughtful um, when it comes to how we communicate with each other, when it comes to how we interact with each other and the, the, the sort of decisions and actions that we, that we take um, in, in our um, interactions with one another. I think that's, that's really what's missing in our political discourse. Today. I love that. I absolutely love that. And uh, uh, Mary Parker Follett uh, wrote a book on, on unity and, and politics, and uh, she was writing at the turn of the century, and it's like she was fighting child labor, and it's like, I felt that those were our children. So how we look at each other as we're all one family, and I've heard people with the COVID, we've, we realize when someone gets a germ over here, that we are really connected in some ways. So, um, you know, I really appreciate your time, uh, Yaka Shewe, you're a council member at the city of Falcon Heights. And again, um, anything else you'd like to uh, say in our last few seconds? Yeah, um, and this is not related to um, the vegetable garden um, ordinance, but it, it is something that's really, really um, been on my mind in the last couple of days. And I'm sure it's been on the mind of your audience and many people across the state, which is um, the recent killing of... Uh, Mr. George Floyd in Minneapolis and, you know, the uh, the riots that have ensued as a result. And I just want to let everyone know how uh, how hurt, you know, many people are as a result of this. And I really, really um, hope that a peaceful resolution can be found and um, a just resolution will be found um, as expediently as possible. And that my heart and mind is with the people of Minneapolis as they um, deal with this 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 new uh, issue. I really appreciate you saying that, and I also um, I've, I've studied a little bit of nonviolent communication and what is the atmosphere we have, and how do we come together and 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 make it and face this moment. Um, so I, I thank you so much for your time and and your your thoughts, and uh, and I hope the best for our city.